today we have Jim Newsom with us. There are a lot of ways to introduce Jim to you. Um, Jim has done a lot of things in his life. He, he was just naturally a pretty talented guy when it all got started. And so just that, just Jim being Jim would have been enough. But then his story of what happened next, the story of what happened next is the story that for many people, it's the first thing you touch with Jim. You know, Jim was incarcerated at one point, went through very difficult things. Um, and then the story of Jesus walking into his life and redeeming it, uh, light penetrating darkness in a way that is one of the more dramatic stories any of us have ever heard or participated in, but has given hope to a lot of us who are pretty similar stories. That is, a, that is a thing that I could say Jim brings to the table today. But there's a lot of other things about Jim that he won't talk about as much today. He is a wonderful husband and father. Uh, I, I, by the way, I'll say this, he's also the person who led me to Jesus. And so his wife, Diane, and, and Jim were the pastors of the church where I met Jesus. And they loved us. And my mom and our family, they, they, he came in and got his hair cut from my mom and uh, as a way to lead people to Jesus, he was getting his hair cut every week. And uh, you, can, you can see what a good job they did. <laughs> okay, we'll get back to the introduction. But um, uh, Jessica and, and Jason were in our wedding. Uh, they're wonderful, and, and Jim's a great father. Um, the thing that I would say that I don't think you get to touch today, which I think is the best part of Jim, is Jim is a great friend. Um, he, the people that God has placed in his life, whether it was in prison or whether it was in being in a church with them or whether it was in meeting them in a, in a difficult spot, he, he just doesn't stop being your friend. He's the brother like no other. He's the friend to the end. He's the saint with no taint. These are all the things that he's taught me to say about him. And uh, <laughs> no, it's the things we say to each other. But um, if you get a chance in the midst of touching what God does in you today through this, to get to know Jim and to be his friend, which he is a friend to this congregation, it's the greatest gift. Um, now, with that said, Jim is an anointed speaker, and there's something about the way that God gives Jim insight that I would just say, as we introduce Jim, would you prepare your hearts? Get ready. Uh, get in on this. Open your heart, and, and let's see what God does with us today. Jim, would you come? By the way, he's also an author, I'll, I'll and I read your book today. <laughs> Amen. I don't know what quite how to handle that introduction. You always get nervous when somebody knows you really, really well. A ask, actually ask to introduce you. So uh, it wasn't so bad. And to clarify thing, I didn't want to get my hair cut by somebody. And so I was looking around where our church was and went in and met Ginger. But she had already been saved, but they weren't really going to church. And uh, so then her, David, her husband, came, and then Jamie came for the summer and stayed, and then their daughter, Sonny, came down. So I, I believe Jamie mainly came when, in Arizona because he heard his mom and dad were in a cult. And, and when I met, met him, I introduced myself as the cult leader. And <laughs> so, amen. Well, I'm humbled by the introduction. Uh, not last week, but the week before, I was at Gatlinburg, Tennessee with, with the CSM conference. And it was, I've been going ever since 1987, and it was probably one of the best ones. So, <clears throat> if you've never been, you need to go. 
it'd be well worth it. And if you have gone, uh, you need to go back. And who can say an amen to that who has gone? Amen. <clears throat> a little known fact about Gatlinburg, though, no, secret that nobody knows, but <clears throat> when you sign up and you're an attender, the CSM staff starts evaluating your spirituality. And then in concert with the hotel, they assign you a, a floor, you know, with your room, according to your spirituality. <laughs> so the higher the floor, the more spiritual you are. And I've been for years stuck on the same floor. <clears throat> just, <clears throat> just longing for the day that I can go higher. And this year, man, I went down there, I checked in, I couldn't believe it. I'm looking at my room number and I see what floor I'm on. I advanced higher. I am now on the second floor. <laughs> what floor were you on, Chris? 15, I rest my case, all right? I rest my case, so. So you're going to get a second floor message today. I know you're used to a 15 floor message, but uh, anyway, before I speak, I want you to turn your Bibles, if you have them, to Luke 6, and we'll read verse 46 in a moment. <clears throat> but outside to my left, your right, uh, where the tables are, those shelvings, I have, uh, I recently published a book, it's called Treasures Hidden in Darkness. It's all about the great treasures I discovered in the midst of the darkest days of my life. And uh, so that's out there. My wife wrote a children's book, so that's out there. And then I write a monthly teaching article. And if you'd like to have that, uh, there's a sign-up sheet. You can either get it by email, electronically, or I can mail it to your physical address. And so it, I just write a, an article every month. And <clears throat> so you're welcome to that. Uh, everything on that table is free. The, my book, my wife's book, and uh, but there's a little box out there because donations are not required, but they are appreciated. And uh, but don't let a lack of a donation keep you from either getting my wife's book or my book. And I wrote it to bless people. I didn't write it to get blessed by it. I mainly wrote it for that. And whatever contribution you make, that money will go into a fund where I can buy from my publisher my books at a reduced rate so I can give them to inmates around the country. I've already given over a thousand books to different prisons throughout the country, so the more money we have in that fund, the more money, more books we can give out to other people. So, did want to do that little commercial. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I pray as we open up your, your word, your logos, that you, by your spirit, will release the rhemas that are contained in the logos. Words, Lord, that I pray that everyone here will hear something from your spirit. It will be like a clarion call. It will be like... Uh, where we are ready to do something corporately. But in the midst of it, Lord, I also ask that you would speak to them an individual word. Lord, everybody in this room today, me included, uh, is in need to hear you. Because one word from you can change everything. 
because your word is loaded, Lord, with healing and deliverance and peace and mercy and all of that is contained within your raiment word to our lives. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would grant us that privilege of hearing not just a corporate word, but also an individual word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm still a little bothered that he was on the 15th floor. I mean, <laughs> sorry, I'm just a little agitated. So. I thought going to second was great, you know, so anyway. Uh, we, Covenant Life and Church included, especially with the founding pastor, are part of a movement. And uh, we've been called a lot of different names, some really good, some not so kind, and uh, uh, and I make no apologies for it. We've been called the discipleship movement or the shepherding movement. And, uh, but one of the great things about this movement, this network of churches that we are loosely, all of us are loosely affiliated with, mainly we're affiliated with another man. And uh, so but one of the great things about it is that we've been known for years as a movement who comes up with a new and fresh word. You know, that God will speak something. You normally, at our annual leadership conferences, out of that will come a, a rhema for our, our movement. And it's been words like discipleship. It's been words like shepherding. It's been words like the kingdom of God. It's been words like binding the strong man. And I can go on and on. And uh, we used to meet here in Atlanta, Back then it was called SCMC, Fellowship of Covenant Ministers and Churches. And I remember when uh, one of the earlier times that we had met here, we're in a meeting, and there was this expectation among all the attendees. Everyone was saying to one another, I wonder what the new word's going to be. I wonder what the fresh word from God is going to be. And there was this buzz and expectation. And then on the opening night, our patriarch, our father, Charles Simpson, gets up, and he starts out by saying this. He says, listen, I know everybody's been asking what the new word is, what the fresh word is. He said, here it is. Start doing all the other words. <laughs> no, he really said that. And uh, how many of you know it's easy to hear a word, but way tougher to live it out? So sometimes we like the romance of the word, but we don't like the reality of trying to then walk it out on a daily basis. That's a little bit more difficult. So I, Jesus said something similar to what Charles said in Luke 6, verse 46. He says, and why do you call me Lord, Lord? And don't do what I say. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? My premise for this morning is this. Lordship isn't a title that Jesus wants to be called. It's a position that he wants to hold in our heart and our lives that is demonstrated by our obedience to what he says. So it's not a title. 
I'm sure it's, it's respectful to say Lord Jesus. But if that, if that lordship hasn't arrested your life, that is demonstrated in you obeying what he has said to you, then he's not really your Lord. You know, when we make, <clears throat> when, we, when we start believing, we make Jesus Savior. When we start obeying, we start making him Lord. You know, as Savior, he gets us into heaven. But as Lord, he gets heaven into us. We don't have to wait to die to get in on all the great stuff of heaven. Remember the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What brings heaven to us is his lordship. It's our obedience. So Jesus introduces into his disciples' thinking this whole concept of obedience, which in our day and age and culture is a very, very negative word. Because of people abusing their authority, both spiritual and then in our world at large, people are very, very skittish of the word obey. Very, very skittish of the word obedience. It's, it's a negative connotation for them. And, 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 and this enemy has successfully robbed us, and I'm going to share in a moment, this very, very valuable aspect of our walk with him. Because here's what I want to tell you. It isn't that God rewards obedience. Now hear this. Obedience is the reward. It's the mechanism. It's the trigger. It's the key that unlocks all that he is, all that he has, and all that he wants to do into our lives. It's the window. It's the channel. Obedience is what opens it all up. So it's, it is valuable to us as Christians, no matter how much the enemy would like to get us to water it down or negate it. We can't afford to do that, church. I'll, I'll risk being abused. I don't want to be abused, but I'll risk it. And to tell you the truth, if, if somebody says something to me, <clears throat> And they, they don't have the right motive or they have a hidden agenda. I don't care. The only thing I'm concerned about is it true. Doesn't matter why he said it. Doesn't matter how he said it. What matters is it's true. And if it's true, because the Bible says, speak the truth in love and you shall grow up. I want to grow up in all the things of Christ. So to me, the only thing is, uh, is it true? Sometimes God will use somebody that doesn't like you to tell you the truth. Because only those people will do it. God tells you to tell, you know, tell somebody in here the truth. And you oh, Lord, I can't do that. All right, that's fine. He'll find an enemy to tell him. Because he doesn't have that problem hurting your feelings. I'm telling you, I, I shouldn't get off on this little rabbit. But, you know... <clears throat> One of the 
diff, more difficult things about discipleship. Discipleship has so many great things, edification, someone walking alongside of you, encouragement and comfort. But there is this one aspect is, what, is where the rubber meets the road, is whether we decide we're going to continue to be discipled or not, and that is in the concept of correction. When we get corrected, then we have... <clears throat> Now, the thing is, if they're trying to correct us, well, we, the only thing we need to be worried about is that area of my life need to be corrected. Is God speaking. I remember when I first got out of prison, I went to a Bible school, and the dean of the school took an interest in me, and so he discipled me. And he saw some potential in me, so he wanted to... It, and it was sponsored by a church of 2,000 people, and so he wanted to help me uh, <clears throat> become a better minister, especially in preaching and teaching. So every Monday, I had to come up with a 15-minute devotional or a little message, and he'd be sitting behind his desk, and to his right, there was a speech pathologist. To his left was a high school uh, English teacher. And they all had notepads. <laughs> and so I would give this 15 minutes. And while I'm talking, they're writing down all my... Marty did it for my theological content. The, the speech pathologist was how I enunciate my words. The high school teacher was in my grammatical errors. And I needed help. I hadn't been in prison in eight, year. I, eight years. I had a very lazy dialect. I didn't say this or that. I said this and that with a D. And I thought it was correct. So I had a very lazy dialect. So as painful as that process was, being corrected, it's what sharpened me. The Bible says as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. The problem with that whole scripture is sharpening creates friction. <laughs> If you don't like the friction, you ain't going to get to the sharpening. So then I finally came. I had improved enough that the senior minister church wanted me to speak on Sunday night. And so I, I was so excited. Bought a new suit. And at least if I didn't sound good, I'd look good. And, and I came up. At that time, I had been completely enamored by Bob Mumford's style of preaching. And I just loved him. And I practiced when I was an inmate all his moves and everything. I stood in front of the mirror, you know, oh, let me see your eyeballs, you know. All his little sayings. He said, uh, let's turn to Mark. That's between Genesis and Revelations, you know. You know, just funny stuff. And, and so I was going to give my best Bob Mumford teaching that night. And... Uh, and and the place was full. There was probably about 2,000 people there. I thought it was annoying. I thought it was great. People came up to me afterwards and said, you know, it was one of the best messages we ever heard in this place. And I'm, I'm so excited. But the only person I really want to hear from is my discipler, uh, Marty. So Marty waits till all the crowds thin out. <clears throat> and he comes over to me. I said, well, what do you think, Marty? And he said, well, I have one word for it. And I'm thinking, anointed. <laughs> You know, magnificent. I'm, honestly, I'm thinking that. You know, he's reduced it down to one word. All right. So I said, well, what, what word is it? And he says, clown. I said, clown? 
And he said, yeah. He said, now, you didn't minister tonight. You entertained. He says, if you want to be an entertainer, I know some comedy clubs where I can send you to. He said, humor used in the right place is great. But you, you had so much it covered. It, it kept people from seeing the truth of what you're saying. He said, I, I got your three points. And he told me. And I said, that's right. He said, I had to work really hard to get those three points. And I said, well, all these lines. He said, yeah, I know I heard them. But on Wednesday night, go up, to one, go up to those who said you did a great job and ask them, what point really ministered to you? I knew I had them now. I'm going to prove him wrong. So I went up on Wednesday night. I only asked three people. They all pretty much said the same thing. I, hey, you said that was really great message. So you had one of the best. I said, which point really ministered to you? And he goes, hmm. I don't know, but that story, it was really funny. <laughs> now that hurt, but it also helped. If you can handle the hurt of the truth, you can get to the help of the truth. And to tell you personally, if someone's going to hurt me with the truth, I better get some help with the truth too. <laughs> I've already experienced the hurt. Now I need to get to the help. I can't tell you how many people say, say to me, well, Jim, that hurt my feelings. And I said, well, listen, it's not that it hurts your feelings. It's, the fact is your feelings always get hurt. He said, God's not, I tell him, God's not out to coddle or soothe or heal your flesh. He's out to kill it. And Charles says, if it, ain't, if, it, if it still hurts, it ain't dead yet. Now, I'm not talking about being insensitive. I'm talking about us having the fortitude to be able to, to not only get in on all the great stuff of being mentored or coached or discipled, but also to embrace that part, which I think is the most important part. I am who I am today because I've had men come alongside of me and tell me the truth. And I responded to it. So <clears throat> he introduces obedience, and i got to be quick. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I'm just trying to soothe Chris when I say i got to be quick. So... so. He said, don't worry, you're not the pastor, so. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going to give you my three points, and I'm going to do a little brief. I'm not, uh, I'll do, I, one of the things I hope I, is I say what God wants me to say, and I don't say what he doesn't want me to say, so amen? So my three points, I'm going to give them to you in this lordship, in Luke 6, is that obeying what he says will release the power to accomplish what he says. Now, what I want to tell you, you don't get the power until you obey. A lot of us are waiting, say, Lord, make me... He calls us to do something that only a strong person do, can do. The problem is we're weak. And God calls us in our weakness... To obey, and as we obey, somewhere in the process, we get his strength. The Bible says we move from weakness to strength. In Hebrews 11, it also says we become mighty in battle. Uh, most Christians say, Lord, make me mighty, then give me a battle. Which don't work like that. You go without any might at all, 
in your weakness, go and get in that battle. And as you obey, it's the obedience that releases the might, and you become mighty. Obeying what he says, number two, will release the provision to fund what he says. Again, most people say, Lord, give me the funding, and then I'll go do it. I said, no. I mean, no, we walk by faith, not by sight. God says, no, you start doing it, and I promise you, in the midst of it, you'll get the funding. <clears throat> Obeying what he says will release the protection that we all need to finish what he says. Because when you start obeying, here comes the enemy. Here comes the battles. And uh, it's important that we have the protection. So the first one is... <laughs> Doing what he says releases the power to accomplish. Now, before I go into this, I want to read 1 Corinthians. Please turn there to 1st chapter, starting with verse 26. I'm a firm believer that the ways of God produce the acts of God. It says in Psalm 103, verse 7, God made known his ways to Moses, but his acts to the sons of Israel. Me, I always wanted to see his acts. And then I discovered this, because Moses knew his ways, the children of Israel saw his acts. He was the catalyst. So it's the ways of God that produced the acts of God. And here's one of his ways. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen <clears throat> the foolish things of the world to confound the uh, wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are. And then this is why he uses foolish things, weak things, despised things, things that are not, so that nobody can boast. So when it happens, nobody gets the credit but God. Now, I said all that to say this. The things, if God asks you to do something, and if it's in, when it first comes to you, if it's not the dumbest plan strategy you ever heard of, then it's probably not God. Now, you're laughing at that. I'm going to prove it to you. Because remember, God uses foolish things. He uses weak things. He uses things that are not. You don't put stock in them. He'll use that. And he'll accomplish his will, and then only he can get it. Let me just give you a couple examples. Joshua comes against Jericho. They've got a lot of, I don't know how many people are with the children of Israel. So he's asking God, he doesn't, so it's implied that he has sought the Lord on how do we overcome Jericho. And I can almost vision, and please, I'm not being light where God is concerned. I just want you to know that God is, he is just, he is holy, but he's also great. So what I mean, I can almost see God, all right, I'm a, I need to give him a plan. It's got to be foolish. It's got to be weak, because that's what I choose. It's got to be something that's not, never been done before. What, what happened? Oh, I know. Seven-day walk. And a shout. I'm going to use that. And then he tells them, oh, and, oh, and by the way, just don't let them talk to one another while they're marching. 
Because if they, he did, they would have, their natural mind would have talked them right out of the supernatural word. I mean, I can just see them marching around day after day. And probably people on the other side of the walls who were initially afraid of them because they had heard about this great mass of people and a little fearful, and then they see all they're doing is walking. I can and probably emboldened some of them to, you know, begin to uh, yell out at them, you know, heckle them. Hey, is that all you got? Got to walk? And I can almost think one of them say, oh, no, buddy, wait till the last day. We got to shout, too. <laughs> but I want you to know, the walls came tumbling down. The power wasn't in the walk. It wasn't in the shout. It was in their obedience to do something foolish. Then you have Gideon who has 32,000 warriors facing 160,000 Philistines. And the Lord gives him a piece. He says, all right, Lord, what do we need to do? He said, well, before I give you the strategy, I need to tell you, you got too many. And he's looking at 160. And he said, really? I got too many. And uh, so the Lord says, you, t you, you tell the men, anybody that is afraid, they can go home. Now, if I was in that army, as soon as I heard that, that's my way out. 160, only got 30, because at that point, the odds were four to one. I would have said, hey, I'm scared. I can go home. So 22,000 of them said, I'm scared. So now they only have 10,000. And uh, so now the odds are 40 to one. And so he says, all right, we got 10,000. And the Lord says... You still have too many. So then he tells them to march around, get real hot, and then release them to get a drink in the river. And everybody that stoops down and drinks like this because the enemy is not too far off. They're being careful. You keep. Everybody just dives in. You can let them go. Now, one of the things that tells us is God can't really use the fearful, and he can't really use the careless. But, so he's left with 300. And then he arms them. God says, yeah, no weapons today. Let's see. Trumpet. A torch. And what was the last one? Pitcher. That's how we're going to do this, baby. Isn't that a dumb plan? Isn't that stupid? It's foolish. It's weak. It's things that are not to nullify the things that are. But they obey. Rout the Philistines. Again, the power wasn't in the pitcher or the torch. Uh, what's the other trumpet? Yeah, it wasn't in that. It was in their obedience. Their obedience unlocked the power for the victory. One last one. <clears throat> King Josephet in... Um, in uh, <laughs> Which one is it? In chapter 20 of 2 second, uh, Chronicles 20, they come up against a great multitude. And he says, Lord, we are facing this great multitude. We are powerless. And we don't know what to do. Now, that statement that he's saying he's powerless, he wasn't, he wasn't making that on the basis of his resources, because if you read in chapter 17, 
he has available to him just around Jerusalem 1,160,000 valiant warriors. So, but he understands something that all of us need to do. That he didn't presume that just because God helped him yesterday, that he would do the same today. He didn't, uh, he knew the battle was not his, it was the Lord's. Didn't matter how big his army was, if God wasn't involved, they were doomed. That the power for victory didn't come from his military, it came from his Messiah. So he's saying, I don't know what to do, so the Lord gives him a strategy. Again, a foolish one. He says, you don't need to fight in this battle, this battle is mine. Here's how we're going to do it. I already used the walk, so I don't want to do that again. I'm a god of a variety, so let me think. What else? Oh, I know. A song. That's how we're going to defeat. I know you've defeated by your sword many times, but this time we're going to do it with a song. So he tells, send out all the musicians and singers first. How many of you know that was great for the army? (laughs) But the worship team, not so much. They're going, what? We're usually on the sideline or in the back, ha-ha, you know, cheering them on. You want us to go out first? God said, yeah, I'm God. I know it's foolish, but that's what I use. I choose foolish things. That's what a lot of people get messed up on. They want a sound plan, you know, and funding and all. And God said, no. You just move forward in your faith. And when you're done, at first you'll seem like the dumbest person in the room. Then years later, like Jamie, with, with a ball worldwide, you are now considered the smartest person in the room. Because God helped you. You did what he said, regardless of what it sounded like. So, doing what he says, I, I'll quickly say this. Uh, <laughs> I never quickly say anything, but um, well, I won't do that. I'm running out of time. Let's turn back to Luke 6. And starting in verse 27 down to 30, it's 11 verses. It starts out prior to him saying, you don't, why do you call me Lord and don't do as I say? What was he referring to? Well, obviously everything he said, but in this context, he had just said some things. It starts in 27 and says, but I say unto you. Then in verse 46, he says, if you call me Lord, Lord, and, and don't do what I say. I mean, I just told you some things. And... So, 10 of those verses have to do with one saying, and it's all about loving your enemies, how you should respond to them. And the reason why there's 10 verses on that is because that is so, so difficult. I mean, it's tough, especially he gives you point by point on how that lo- what that love should look like. It's just not, hey, I love you. <laughs> You know, it is doing things, and I'll leave that up to you read yourself. And then the last one talks, the last verse talks about his generosity. So he talks about two main things in this passage, loving your enemies, and then he wants to talk about generosity. 
<clears throat> so I want to go with the generosity one first because that's easier, and then I want to go deal with the love your enemies, and then we'll close. <clears throat> so <clears throat> obedience to what he says, second point, releases the provision to fund what he says. You just start doing what God asks you to do, and somewhere in the process, you'll get the provision that will fund that. And it says over in Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2, Now it shall be, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth, and all these blessings will come upon you, and they will overtake you. So the imagery here is this. I don't have any money. God tells me to do something that requires money. So I start running after the Lord in my, I heard, and now I'm obeying. The moment I do that, it says the blessing starts running after me. And somewhere in the process, the blessing runs faster than I do. It comes upon me, and it overtakes me. You're not running after the funding, you're running after the Lord and the funding or whatever it is, the blessing overtakes you. So <clears throat> it releases it. And uh, I want to, so in Luke 6, 38, this is one of these things I say unto you. It says, give, and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they will pour into your lap, and then Here's the most powerful thing about this. For, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you again. Now, that phrase by Jesus is only used three times in the four Gospels. <clears throat> One has to do with hearing the Word of God and how we respond to it. One has to do with our judgment and judging others. <clears throat> and then this one has to do with our Giving. So here, and I really need for you to hear this. This is so tough for Christians. And believe me, I don't have any agenda. The, for a Christian, the measure of your giving determines the measure of your receiving. Now, in the world, and for most Christians, and I'm not mad at them for it, they're just missing out on some good stuff. They allow the measure of their receiving to determine the measure of their giving. I get this much so I can afford to give this much, whether it's to the church or to a mission or to somebody who's in need. We allow our receiving to determine our giving and church. That hurts us more than it helps us. So our measure of giving is determined. I mean, our measure of receiving is determined by our measure of giving. And God gives us the measure. I'm just going to read these scriptures. It says in Romans 8.32, and hear this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Man, this is so powerful. He says, I already did the most difficult thing. I gave up my son. I sacrificed him for you. Just think about what that cost me. But I'm telling you also what's 
packaged with that is I'm going to give you freely, give you all things. It says over in Matthew 10, 8, when he sent out the disciples two by two, he makes this statement to you, and I wanted you to read it to you out in the Amplified Version. It says, <clears throat> freely, and then in parentheses, without charge, you receive. God said, I didn't charge you for what I just gave you. And then it says, therefore, because you freely received it without charge, you now to freely give it without charge. I can't tell you how many times pastors call me up and they said, Jim, we'd like for you to come. I said, great, I'll come. And they say, how much you charge? I mean, I can't say to them, well, the Lord charged me a thousand bucks for this message. <laughs> so I, I need to get at least 1,500. I know it's funny, but God freely gave it to me. He didn't charge me for it. He freely gives us stuff. That's why I don't charge for anything that I do. I freely give it. And believe me, that determines our receiving. Because I work for him. I don't work for you. Now, God may use you, and if he does, that blesses you. But if he don't use it, he'll get it to me someplace else, and they'll get the blessing. It is true. So I, I've determined, let me just tell you one quick story of how this works out. And I might have told it before, but if I did, it's a good story. You need to hear it again. <clears throat> because I don't charge, I go to this crusade um, in uh, Alabama every year. It's week long. 400 volunteers come down, and I train them in the morning sessions. All of them are Mennonites. And you got to understand something about Mennonites. They're very, very frugal. You know, I lived in Lancaster County, and one of the things I'll say, you know, they'll give you a riddle. What's the difference between a Mennonite in a restaurant and an Indian going down the river in a canoe? Well, the Indian's more likely to tip. I'm serious. And so, um, so I train them all in the morning. And I, back then I had a lot of CDs and CD series. I have a product, what they call product table. Only on my table says everything on this table is free. So I'm, and in the morning before I teach, uh, we breakfast together. So I'm always looking for somebody new to sit down and get to know. You never know some of those great treasures you'll discover. And so I sat down at this one table. There was four other people. And one of them, who was in a flannel shirt, you know, dungarees, typical Mennonite looking. I thought he was a farmer. You know, he uh, says to me, he said, Jim, do you take credit cards? I said, credit card for what? He said, well, oh, I want to get some of your materials, and I don't have any cash. And I said to him, I said, what about everything's for free you don't understand? And he says, I can't do that to you. I said, well, I can. So I went over, and I got him some series and some individuals. All told, it was about 20 CDs. And I gave them to him. And I said to him, I said, listen, the only thing I require is if it blesses you, share it with someone else. Let it bless them. He said, okay. That was in January of 2008. In March, I get this letter in the mail from a, it's called the Pint... Twin Pine Auto Group. 
And in it was a letter from this guy uh, with a check for $12,000. And in it, he says this. He said, Jim, you wouldn't put a value on these messages, so I decided to put a value on it. Now, if you do the math, that means he paid $600 for every CD. Now, the reason why I don't sell them, you can't afford them. Uh, you, you, you just can't. But, and then he's been a big supporter every year since then. And I've never asked him for anything. We've become great friends. We, our family's a vacation together. I play with him golf, with golf on several. He's came and stayed with me. Uh, so the real value is his friendship. But I, you need to allow the measure of your giving to determine the measure of your receiving. Please, it will change your life. It will release the funding in your life. And then the last one, <clears throat> and I'll quickly deal with this one, is that doing what he says will release the protection that you will need to finish what he says. Make no mistake, when you start obeying, the enemy will try to start attacking in some way. He doesn't mind you believing something. What he does mind is you obeying and doing something. So how many of you understand this concept that the wolf doesn't howl at the door where there is no bacon? Meaning, as soon as you put some bacon in there, here comes the wolf. As soon as you get some truth and you're going to start walking it, here comes the enemy. Paul said it this way, a wide effective door of service has opened to me, but there are many adversaries. You can't separate opportunity from opposition. It is a package deal. And so, but understand, by obedience, you are building a foundation of protection. Listen to what it says after 46 in Luke 6. It says... Uh, it says everyone this is right after he says why do you call me Lord Lord and don't do what I say everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them I will show whom he is like he is like someone building digging laying a foundation on a rock and when the storms come uh, and I want you to know, obedience will bring storms. But your obedience will create a foundation that you can weather any storm. When it's over, you're still standing. Not only are you still standing, you are stronger, you are deeper, you are wider. Somewhere in the process, you are grateful for the storm. Because of the, you don't feel that way in the midst of it. <laughs> But when you come out on the other side, you see all that the storm has done. And then he says, those who hear, now notice, both hear the word of God. One acts on them, the other one doesn't. And it doesn't say he's building. He says he's already built. He has built his life on what the world says and not what the word says. And, he, and they, they said, that's sound. The world says you don't engage in endeavor until you have the might and you have the funding. So, well, in the world that does work, but in the kingdom of God, remember, his ways are not our ways. So I want to take one of loving your enemies. 
because this is hard. And I'll tell one story and then we'll close. It says in verse uh, 28, so he's, well, 27, 20, he says, I say to, to you who hear, love your enemies, and here's how you love them. You do good to those who hate you. While they're hating on you, you bless them. I mean, that's hard. It really is. And then it says, bless those who curse you. And then it says, pray for those who mistreat you. But if you do this, God will build a foundation that will enable you to be able to handle the hate, the mistreatment, the cursing. One of the things I found out when I was in prison, only hurting people hurt others. It's out of their own pain that they inflict pain. And what they need is someone, some Christian in their life who is willing to absorb the pain that they're inflicting while they minister to the pain that they're experiencing. And if they do that somewhere in the process, they'll quit hurting. And not only will they quit hurting you, they quit hurting everybody else. So I'm just going to tell you one story and we'll close. Is that all right? Okay. I'm a little over my time, but <clears throat> just tell you how, how this went, worked for me. As I mentioned, I was in prison for eight years, most violent prison in the state of Florida. And uh, I've been in there six years, had a really good reputation. Most inmates respected me, all the staff respected me, and didn't really have a whole lot of problems. But when I got moved to be, run the outside warehouse, which I had other inmates under my supervision, uh, and we all met at the back gate, the, the janitor of the um, warehouse uh, took an interest in me. Now, I don't want anybody blush, but it was a sexual interest in me, as you might imagine from watching prison movies. And uh, so every day at the gate, he would say vulgar things about me. And he was six foot eight. He was an African-American, and his nickname was Scatterhead. So, because he was crazy. And so he's just verbally abusing me every day. But I had learned in prison, as long as somebody talks, they're not going to do anything. Just let them talk. Just ignore them. It's the ones that don't talk you have to be concerned about. But as long as they're running their gator, that's all they're going to do for the most part. But this guy kept doing it day after day after day. So he was my enemy. So the first thing I did is I started doing good for him. I ran the warehouse, but once a week I cleaned the warehouse for him, including the two bathrooms. And uh, so I did that. I prayed for him every day because that's what the Bible says. While he is verbally abusing me, embarrassing me in front of other inmates, I'm doing these things. But all it did was embolden him. He took my kindness at, weak, at weakness, and it just caused him to say even more, and getting to the point where he may act on what he says. And so even though I had done this for a couple of months, you know, he had just did this. We just, I just got to my desk, and I'm crying out to God. And I said, Lord, I did everything you said. Now, understand, while I'm doing that, I'm building a foundation 
of protection. One that I didn't know I needed until later, but I'm building it because I'm obeying. And so I'm crying out to God, and I'm asking, well, can I, Lord, you have to help me, man. This guy, I wasn't afraid of him as much as I was irritated by him. So I heard the voice of the Lord, the still small voice, the Ramah say to me, son, I want you to stand up to him. Now, I interpret that erroneously as God wanted me to fight him. I really thought that's what he meant, stand up to him. And I, and I was emboldened that if God told me to do it, he's going to help me, just like he helped David with his Goliath. And so I go over to him and I say, hey, scattered, if you ever say anything to me, again, I'm going to do my best to take your head off. And he calls me a vulgar name, and then I call him a name, which really made him mad. And so he jumps up and he said, Newsom, if I ever catch you in the back of the warehouse, I'm going to make you regret you ever said that. And I said, well, you don't have to catch me. Let's go back there. Now, understand, David, Goliath, you know, I'm, I, I'm going to slay this baby. People are going to see what God can do today. Because he said, stand up. He did not say fight him. I'll tell you why later. So, but, and he says, well, look, let me go get my stomping boots on, which he did. So he went and changed his, from gym shoes to these brogans. And so we go back, and other inmates come to make sure nobody jumps in. And, and I'm thinking the whole time, I, all I need is one blow. You know, one blow, and I'm going to slay this giant. So I'm looking for my opportunity. And as he turns around, I did what we call sucker punch him. And I hit him with all my might, right in his jaw, and my hand hurt, and he went like this. <laughs> the next thing you know, he jacked me up, threw me down on the ground, and he starts beating me. I mean, so bad. I was thinking, I was, I was no longer feeling the pain. I was, it was like I was outside my body or something surreal. And I was thinking very calmly, if he doesn't stop, I'm going to die. And something inside me, I found out later, it wasn't vocally, I thought it was, a cry that said, help me, Jesus. Now, the moment that cry came in my heart, Scatterhead stopped what he was doing. He, uh, he, got, he was really, he was huffing and puffing. It, look, one good thing is that I knew it, you know, he got tired and weary beating on me, so... Takes a lot of energy to beat me, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but anyway, so he's huffing and puffing, and I struggle to get to my feet, and now the anointing hits me. And I'm thinking, where were you about five minutes ago? Because now I'm standing up to him. So I, the anointing hits me, and I tell everybody that's standing around, I said, leave us alone, and they left us alone. And then I said, Scatterhead, sit down. And amazing enough, he sat down. I had authority that I didn't know I had. And, and I said to him, Scatterhead, ever since I've been out here, I've been trying to get you to respect who I am and what I believe in. I said, but the only thing you respect is what we just did. I said, there was uh, no doubt in my mind that you were going to do this to me. Look at me. And I'm bleeding. I had a gash, took eight uh, stitches, two cracked ribs. And I said, but if we have to go through the same thing every day, you're either going to have to respect me or you're going to kill me. 
and immediately he starts crying. And then he apologizes. Two days later, I lead him to the Lord. His name is Kerry Sanderson. The Bible says that we're to be, in Romans 8, 37, we're to be more than conquerors. A conqueror is someone who defeats his enemy. More than a conqueror is someone who wins his enemy. And that's what Jesus is trying to talk about in Luke 6, about how your enemies, you can win them. One last aspect of this, <clears throat> then we're going uh, to have you stand and we're going to pray. So after that, that day, I had to go up to the infirmary to get stitched up and my ribs were cracked and my eyes were swelling shut and I, my face was all puffy and swollen. And so I'm up there getting stitched up. Now in, all, in our prison, they had an investigative team. It was a lieutenant and a sergeant. They investigate all crimes, inmate upon inmate, inmate upon guard, so all the crimes. So I get stitched up and I start walking down to my dorm and I meet them on the crosswalk. They were already coming up to ask me questions. They had heard what happened and they're investigating. So Lieutenant Norman says to me, he said, Newsom, he said, uh, what happened to you? And I said, I fell. And he said, you can't get injuries like that from falling. I said, I know. I said, but that's my story. I fell. And he says, you know, I could write you a DR right now, disciplinary report, and put you in the hole. And I said, I understand that. And if you feel like you need to do that, go ahead. I said, but these guys here, and I actually did, I said, these guys here can put me in the grave. So if my choice is grave or hole, I'm going with the hole every time. And he starts chuckling. And then I said this to him. I said, <clears throat> Lieutenant Norm, by the way, I really didn't lie to you. I promise you, somewhere in the process, I fell. <laughs> and he laughed and let me go. But prior to that, I had received a new nickname from some of the African-American. But because everyone heard I didn't snitch, my prison cred went up, and almost all African-Americans started calling me this new nickname, which was Ritz, R-I-T-Z. And I couldn't figure out when the few were calling me that, why, hey, Ritz, how you doing? You know, and I'm thinking, all right. And so I finally asked one, well, why, why are you calling me Ritz? He said, well, there's this commercial on TV with Andy Griffin for Ritz crackers. He opens up one, he takes a bite of it, and he says, Ritz, now that's a good cracker. <laughs> So what they were saying is I was a good cracker. And uh, let's stand together. <clears throat> I've prayed a lot since last night and this morning on how to do this, this altar call. And the only way I know how to do it is to... I pray that in the midst of that message, even in the midst of some of the fun things that we had, that you'll go away with the fact that lordship isn't a title. It's a position that he wants to hold into our lives. And it's demonstrated by our obedience to his word. I know some of you, God has asked you to do something, and you're waiting until you get strong to do it. Don't do that. 
get some advice from your pastor or someone who's walking with you, but start obeying. And you'll be amazed by the power and strength that is released. There's other things. God has given some of you a dream. But the strategy just seems, by the world comparison, foolish. Be emboldened. That's what God uses. And if, and some of you, it gets, you're, you're obeying, but it's getting a little bit scary because the enemy is around. Just continue, I promise. You'll be protected. I did not die. In fact, it emboldened me. I, I led three people to the Lord in prison that beat me up. One of the things I said to the Lord, please don't give me a beat-me-up ministry. <laughs> I, I didn't want to get to the point and say, hey, if you beat me up, you'll get saved. Come on. But I, but I didn't die, and things happened. I found out Scatterhead in our fellowship, he was abused physically and sexually by a family member when he was a kid. He was hurting, and he needed somebody to love on him even while he was inflicting pain. So if you're here today, and, and if any one of those are fitting you, where you're saying, I know the Lord told me to do something, but I'm waiting until I get the power. Or if you're, God told you to do something, but you're waiting to get the provision. Or if the Lord told you to do something, and, and you, don't, you feel vulnerable and unprotected then I'd like for you to just come from where you're at. I won't ask you what it is. I just want to pray for you. I want to seal this message into your heart. So just come on forward, wherever you're at, and let me pray a prayer. Whatever God uh, gives you a hunger for, he'll also satisfy. So come, wherever you're at, come forward. Whatever it might be. Because a lot of obedience are big steps of faith. They are. They're big steps of faith. There are missions waiting to happen here. Books waiting to be written. There are songs waiting to be sung. There are ministries waiting to be established. And you can do it simply by obeying. Father, I lift up all these that are here this morning, and I'm asking, Lord that you help them. Lord, obedience is no small task. But Lord, you obeyed. People in the Old Testament obeyed. Peter obeyed. Paul definitely obeyed. Lord, help us. Help these precious souls that as they obey, power and might and strength will be released in their life. As they obey, obey, Lord, I pray that provision will be released in their lives. And as they obey, Lord, I pray that you will protect them until the storm is over and they find out, man, man, I made it through. Not only did I made it through, I'm stronger than I've ever been. So, Lord, I pray for this people, this congregation, Lord, help them to do the impossible. In Jesus' name, amen.